on this week's show, I think I've got a pretty cool little project that we're going to talk about. Specifically, we're going to talk to a brewer named Ben Richards. He's out of the UK, and he has quite the project going on. It's a two-year project where year one, he grew all of the ingredients to make a beer. He's doing the same this year, but he's also adding the factor of being able to forage for a beer. So we're going to dive into all of this on Beer with Ben on Homebrewing DIY. Quoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Building recipes and taking good notes are two of the key fundamentals of making great beer. This is one of the first things that you learn when becoming a new brewer. I started taking notes on a sheet from my extract kit and then quickly moved to brewing software. I've tried many different types of brewing software and then I found Brewfather. This is the one piece of software that you need for recipes and very detailed brew day notes, as well as fermentation notes. Brewfather also integrates with some of the topics that we discuss on the show, like the till hydrometer, the ice spindle, and ferment track. You need no other piece of software than Brewfather. One of the best parts of Brewfather is that you can try it for free. All you need to do is head to our website, homebrewingdiy.beer, and click on the Brewfather banner to sign up for free today. Once again, that's homebrewingdiy.beer, and sign up for Brewfather today. Keeping a clean brewery is the key to making great beer that doesn't get contaminated. Do you use a glass or plastic carboy for your fermentation? Did you know that getting your carboy clean can be tough, especially removing the cruisin ring? Even with traditional carboy cleaning tools, it can take a lot of time and not get your carboy completely clean. Well, today there's a new tool that can easily clean your carboy and do it fast, and that tool is called a scrubber ducky. Scrubber duckies are a new magnetic carboy cleaner that are easy to use and get the cleaning results required in brewing. Drop a magnetic scrubber into your carboy and be able to scrub away all of the grime in that hard to clean cruisin. They are no match for scrubber duckies and you can get yours today at scrubberduckies.com. Once again, head over to scrubberduckies.com. Welcome back to Homebrewing DIY, the podcast that takes on the do-it-yourself aspect of homebrewing. Gadgets, contraptions, and parts, this show covers it all. 
On this week's show, we're going to talk to Ben Richards about his two-year-long project where in year one, he grew every ingredient to make a single batch of beer in his own little garden, you might say. And then in year two, he's doing the same project, but with a little bit of a twist, he's also able to forage locally for ingredients as well. And so we're going to talk to him about his podcast that he's created, his website that chronicles the entire experience, and we're going to dive into how he fulfilled some of these projects. So stick around while we speak with Ben a little bit later on the show. But first, I'd like to thank all of our patrons over at Patreon. It's because of you that this show can come to you week after week. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash homebrewing DIY and give it any amount. Your support's going to help this show come to you week after week. And please don't forget, I still currently have scrubber duckies that I have to give as a thank you gift for anybody at the $5 level. Also, if you would like to get a sticker and an ad-free version of this show, you can give it the $3 a month level. Another way to support the show is by leaving us a review. Head on over to applepodcasts or podchaser.com and leave us a five-star review. Your review helps other homebrewers find this show. The last way to support the show is head on over to homebrewingdiy.beer and use our sponsor links. You can buy Brewfather or do your shopping at Adventures in Homebrewing or get a brew bag from brewinabag.com. And doing so is going to let them know that we sent you. So use our sponsor links and help support the show. Stick around a little bit later for the show. After the interview, we're going to do a bit of a feedback section. So that is the new format of the show where we're going to do the interview. And then at the end, I will get into the feedback from all of the emails that people have sent me. I got a lot of feedback on last week's show where we were discussing small batch beers. Lots of really interesting takes on why people are doing small batch beers. So stick around for at the end of the interview and for some of that really cool feedback. Well, let's jump into this week's show where we're going to talk to Ben Richards about beer with Ben. I'd like to welcome Ben Richards to the Homebrewing DIY podcast. Hi, Ben. How are you? Hi, Cody. I'm good. Thanks. Yourself? Excellent. Now, Ben is the creator of a website called Beer with Ben, which is a easy to remember nam- name. I, I kind of like that. And he also is created. He has created a new podcast that's called Growing Beer, and kind of split up into a couple segments. One figure, fi- one fixated on growing all the aspects of your brewery and ingredients, and then the second one called he's now on a series two called finding beer specifically focused on foraging for some of those ingredients. And I'm always fascinated by this style of brewing because to me, it's something where this is where beer initially came from. Right. And so I I think let, let's, let's hop right into the, how do how, how did you decide to start? Hey, I, I'm going to not do a homebrewing kit. I'm going to just grow everything from scratch. What, what made you decide to go down this journey? Uh, I think it started off like um, most poorly thought through ideas in the pub with friends. We sat around at a pub garden with a couple of guys who were, who were brewers and we just got chatting. And I remember thinking, 
do you think it's possible to do that yourself, be genuinely sort of self-sufficient for those ingredients? And the general chat said, no, probably not. And then as that idea has been planted, you know, the seed's been planted and you keep thinking about it, you go, actually, I'm going to give it a try. And then I, I made the kind of series of, I won't say mistakes, I'll say dubious decisions, where I thought, I'm going to go for this, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to get my allotment, um, which you know, in the UK, it's just a bit of a 10 meter squared um, kind of beds that you can rent each year to grow one that I use as space but then I thought well actually if I'm gonna if I'm gonna do this I might get a couple of my friends to help out as well and they said oh actually you need some more advice you know, about you know the different ingredients how to grow it that kind of stuff and one of those same friends then said um, well if you're gonna speak to these experts you should probably record it you know at least do the website or something so we can share it and then before you know it, I've got a podcast and a website and and it kind of just snowballed out of control but you know bring it back down again it was it was really just that interest in getting to the real kind of basics of brewing you know we, we all rely and, and are lucky to be able to rely on these huge you know producers and processors and networks we can order anything in we want um, but to actually just go back and learn about those ingredients it's just, it just always interested me really yeah and and so we have four ingredients in beer and essentially obviously water probably the easiest one to come up with it's just going to either come out of your tap or if you have well water it's going to come out of your well <laughs> But then when we talk about the other three, now we're talking about some different aspects. And I would say the hardest one to come by is probably going to be malt or barley as far as the, the most work to actually create. So you, you said you, you started with some, some planting beds. What, what, how did you figure out how to not only grow it, but then to get into malting? So in the first project, that growing beer, um, it started off in, in, in January, just this kind of rubbish strewn plot that I'd taken on. And I did, I broke it up, had a plan in place. And so of those four ingredients, I'd actually say that yeast was probably the hardest one to get the result you want from. But yeah, you're right. Barley is definitely the most work because the, the hops, you put them in the ground in, in, in kind of late winter. As long as you've got a big enough pole and some string, they'll do the job pretty well yep. without too much work. Water, um, I had a few challenges uh, with this one because my, my plot had no spring, no tap, nothing like that. And the rule of the project was everything has to come from this piece of this small piece of land. Nothing's allowed in. So <laughs> I realized I made a rod for my own back very early on with that rule, but there you go. So I had these you know, guttering and buckets out to collect rainwater, but that's, that's you know, a little bit later on maybe. Um, but yeah, the barley. I, um, with every episode that I had for the podcast, they ran throughout the whole year. I had an expert who was invited in to try and give me some guidance, help me not go too badly uh, wrong one way or the other. And so at the very start of January, I had um, uh, like a, I guess a bit of a national gardening celebrity, Toby Buckland in the UK. And he advised me on actually how you plant a crop, a grain crop, and how you can set your, set your plot up to make the most of it and get that soil as good as you can. But it was certainly um, the most work. It was absolutely, you know, days and days getting it ready. It was another couple of days actually sowing this crop. It's all done by hand. And then just trying to kind of protect it, coax it, water it, keep the birds off, all that kind of stuff. Even down to the point that I was growing all organic, um, which means you've got no way of, of, of you know, dealing with, with pests, um, with strengthening the plants um, unorganically, um, which is the way I'd like to grow anyway. Whenever we grow stuff, we don't, we don't add anything. But, but you get to late July in the UK and you get the traditional British summer, which is just storms, sunshine, then rain again. And you, know, you lose a third of your crop in the night because a storm came in and flattened it. 
So the amount of work you have to put in on that basis really shows you why no one in their right mind does it and grows it themselves by hand. It's all done in, those, <laughs> in that huge scale. Well, funny you say that because if you if you look at my back catalog, I have a gentleman called Gian, Giovanni Giovetti, and he was on this podcast, and he's got his own home malting setup that you wouldn't believe and he's grown his own and it's like but he lives in italy very different climate and he also has a farm so he he has plenty of land to do it on but when we're talking about a small garden plot right how much grain did you get out of growing it like like what, what would you say your harvest was if you were to put it into kilograms it was i I think i can remember it it was 4.7 kilos which is is not a huge amount yeah that's about eight pounds that's about eight pounds of grain here in the united states a little bit probably closer to nine or ten but yeah it's a small amount of beer for what is a lot of work but um, yeah and, and and what i hadn't realized as well is that throughout that first project i had some help from some really 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 awesome groups um who were kind of national malt malting companies or national hop growers all advising or helping me with some of their equipment and guiding me through that process and, and reducing i guess reducing the risk that i brought to the situation by their expertise and their processes and what what came off the plot was like seven kilos of, of grain actually ended up as less than five once it was malted and it was ready to brew with so it's this kind of continual diminishing of your uh, of your end product so you ended up with uh, by the time you were done malting it what, what would you say the batch size you ended up with and you could do it in liters that's fine yeah it was just under 15 liters i think okay so, and, um, it, and what be, what style of beer did you make here you know, I thought at the start of the project that I'd be able to choose. I'm doing all the ingredients in the same way that you can like look at a, a list of grain and hops and yeast and go, right, I can choose literally a million different combinations here. I thought I'm going to be able to have all these choices. And by the time I got to about I know, halfway through, I realized I'm going to get what I get. And that's it. I have no choice. So, um, <laughs> I, 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 and I assumed as well that I, because I'm, I'm, I'm growing, uh, I grew Westminster barley, which is an organic variety. Um, and it's used in the UK as one of the main organic ones. I thought I'm going to, that's, you know, it's going to be a, a fairly pale um, standard uh, malt. I was growing um, Fuggles hops um, and like a UK US Cascade uh, variant. But again, UK hops. I thought I'm going to be catching or trying to get the wild yeast off of my plot. And I'm using really soft rainwater. So that'll bring next to no flavor or, or kind of qualities to it other than just its softness. So I thought I'm going to get myself an English ale, ale probably like a, you know, a light bitter, I expect. And then when we get to the end, the style was, was totally different. Um, I had it lined up, the final tasting, which I hadn't tried. Um, the first bottle went to somebody else who's doing it straight to the podcast. And he's an international beer judge who, who I know in the Southwest here. And um, he opened it and it came out like nothing I was expecting. The, the yeast kind of completely did its thing. And it came out like a German Weiss beer, which is, you know, insane for... <laughs> but in the end, uh, we'll, we'll, let's get into the yeast in, here in a second mm. after we talk about how you did the malt. But the, in the end, it's kind of one of those things. Was and something I say as a as a as a home brewer is I make wort and yeast mm-hmm. makes beer, right? Yeah. And and it's and like you said, you at some level you're going to get what you get, and yeast is probably the most. The, is probably the biggest component to that when they say, hey, you, you could put whatever love you in into it. Whatever comes out the other side is what the yeast decides it's going to do, right? Yeah, yeah, completely. The flavors that came through in it um, were not British traditional 
beer flavors at all. They were totally continental, totally yeast-driven. You know, it had the real clove banana bubblegum coming off of it, which is totally the yeast. So it was, it was yeah. a nice surprise, but definitely a surprise. Hey, at least it was a good drinkable beer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, um, um, the guy judging said that if you entered this into a, into like a, a wheat or vice category, it may even get to kind of bronze medal level. It met all the criteria you'd expect had you tried to make that beer. So complete chance that's, it came out that way, but yeah, I was happy. That's awesome. So let, let's talk about the malting process and how mm. you learned how to... So you grew this, you, you got about seven kilos from harvest. After malting, you ended up with about five. And what did the malting process look like on such a small scale? Like, how did, how did you actually do it? Well, that year, I didn't. This year is where I am going to with this next project. So in the first year, the rule was all the ingredients had to come from the plot. But I had an offer from one of the malting companies to say, we've got a tiny micro scale test malting setup. And if you want to use that, you're welcome to. If you want, and I decided at the end, like, yeah, I'm going for that. I've done so much work now. (laughs) I don't trust myself not to ruin this like five kilos of grain. So in that case, it went through that process. But the second project, the finding beer, all through that first year, I was thinking to myself, I'm growing the ingredients, I'm learning how those those are created and how you process and, and bring those on, but I'm doing it, as I said, with, with you know centuries of expertise behind me, all this really high-end equipment. I mean, for the yeast, I had some guys at university lab do the identification and the process and DNA profiling of it. You know, we really went to town on it because we could, whereas this year, I'm scaling it right back and it's coincided, you know, it, it's... I hate to say there's a silver lining to the current situation, but I've been forced to do this like, you know, my predecessors would have been thousands of years ago. And so it's this year that I've, I'm growing the grain and I'm also foraging for some grain, but I'm now having to review that malting process. And at the moment, it's looking like I'm going to go back to what would have been like a Neolithic really early um, process where I'm going to soak the grain. I'm going to let it grow on and let those sort of the roots and the acrospire come out. I'm then going to try and build my own little kiln in my front garden so that I can I can sit there probably for you know a solid day or so um, just a little wood fire getting that hot air to rise up through up through the grain and dry it out that way so it's going to be a very very old-fashioned very manual process I think well I can't wait to listen to the podcast on that by the way it's it's, it's going to be a really really cool experience so let, let's talk so so the malt process then you took it to the maltster they mm-hmm. created the malt for you and got yep. the kiln that you wanted for your beer that you made and then you you said you grew fuggles and in what was in what was the other hops uh fuggles uh uk cascade and uk cascade and then water was rainwater that you collected on property it was and yes. let's talk about what you did to actually capture the yeast and what mm. that process looked like yeah it was it was a long process but it started off in spring and i have a couple of friends who have worked at a local university or work at a local university and they we had this wonderful kind of sequence of of, of luck excuse me <clears throat> of, of luck whereby all of the people involved in one of their research labs were really supportive of a beer brewing had an interest in it so i was able to get their help in in in, in taking samples from the from the plot so i cut out any flowers any any growing plants about 15 or 20 of them from all over the place give them to them they then put them through this this 
awesome process whereby they're they're spinning the samples down at like 13,000 g to get the any any yeast and, and, and particles down. They're then um, doing the DNA testing. They're cryogenically freezing them down to minus 80 for preserving any yeast that they do find and bringing on the cultures. You know, way beyond what I could do, and certainly what I'm doing this year anyway. But we did that, and then we did it in uh, the spring. We did it in the summer, and then we did it right in the autumn when all the fruits and the sugars are around. We, we, we tried that, and we managed to isolate two yeasts in those first batches, one of them more closely associated with winemaking, but still a, a Saccharomyces, and another one which is found in some Lambic beers as well. But we hadn't at that point found that Cerevisiae, the kind of the real, the one that does the work for us in a traditional kind of way that we're expecting. I then tried... Also produces a more clean, off, a more clean flavor is what you're looking mm. for, instead oh, of more... Uh, and to kind of explain this to a more layman's terms is you're looking for a wild yeast that doesn't give you that kind of saison flavor right yeah yeah i i want something which is um well it's kind of open to you know whatever we got i think in, in, in that in that point but yeah we want one which can have go through most of the sugars so we get a, a full fermentation as much as we can and then produce either desirable flavors or not the off flavors that you can get from from wild yeasts really yeah. and that, that can be really hit or miss i think but we, we didn't find that 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 kind of workhorse traditional one that we was hoping for so the next phase was to try some insects so i was there with a little petri dish um just trying to coax like a bee in off of a flower to sort of step on the agar and drop some yeast off hopefully because so i was contacted by a brewer in, in denmark who said i got it from bees it was insects because they go to every flowering and sugar source and if there's going to be yeast anywhere off of sugar it's probably on one of the insects so I was there sort of trying to, trying to capture the little bees, very gently, obviously, and let them to walk around and let them go again. And then we ran that through the same process. But we, found this, we kept finding the same yeast again and again. And by the end of the year, I didn't actually find a kind of more traditional Cerevisiae strain. We ended up brewing with, with those two strains. Yeah, and f- funny people always talk about, think it's weird that you're like, hey, a bug is going to do it, mm-hmm. right? But I could tell you that, and I've done some wild yeast wrangling in my backyard and in my past, and and some of the best yeast that I actually captured were like off of a wasp that fell into my beer that I was out (laughs) setting in. And then it turned out to ferment like, like it fermented like a champ. And so, because these are the insects that are going, like you said, from flower to flower, they're covered in different pollens and yeasts and Mm. sugars. And just the, it's an environment in which that they thrive. And yeah. so if, you, if you're doing some wild yeast wrangling out there and want to try something, go for the bugs, guys. Go for the bugs. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. We had, uh, we had on that day, we had a BBC we're doing a bit for a gardening program. And because we had this really strong crossover with growing the ingredients on an allotment, they wanted to do a little, little profile on it. And they were just totally paranoid whilst filming this. Because that was the day I was collecting the yeast from the bees. And they were just saying, you, you, we can't do this. You cannot be seen to hurt a bee on the BBC. We'll be absolutely, you know, run out of town <laughs> if you do that. You can't hurt bees. So... <laughs> You were like, I promise I will not hurt this beer. Yeah, I guarantee no bees will be harmed in the making of this beer. <laughs> so then you, so you've got your four ingredients, and did you just brew this on your home system? Did you go to a brewery and brew it? How, how did you actually brew the beer? Uh, I took everything to a friend's brewery down uh, a few miles down the road, and I've got a small kind of all-in-one setup that was just the right size for, for the, the meager amount of barley I, I managed to get throughout the year. Um, and uh, my final, second to last interview was with the brewer there. We're talking about the process and the equipment and kind of comparing what he had, the proper 
the proper stuff to my small setup and the ingredients that I had. So then we brewed it kind of in situ, this tiny little table in the middle of a huge brewery, <laughs> which was quite good fun for the night. That's awesome. And then once it was done, you had that sent off to a taster that was a uh, international beer judge and, and got feedback on the beer, right? Mm. Well, we actually um, uh, went to a pub. Uh, I drove down to see him, um, went into a pub. We sat there. Um, he, 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 I think intentionally took his time, really thinking things through before opening the one bottle. And, and, and it was a stressful moment, probably the most stressful moment of, of, of the entire year. Um, partly because I, uh, when you're, obviously when you're bottle conditioning and you want to get that kind of that second fermentation, a little bit of life in the beer, because my rule was everything had to come from the plot, I can't just put sugar in before bottling. I, I don't have any cane sugar or sauce on plot. So I kept back um, some of the original wort, about a litre or so. I froze it. And then once it finished that first fermentation, I was ready to bottle, I thawed it out and I poured it back into the, into the now fermented beer before bottling it. So that acted like a sugar source for the yeast to try and then bottle condition. But um, trying to work out your sugar levels and exactly what what level of kind of conditioning and how much gas you're going to put into the beer or CO2. It's not, I didn't find it that straightforward. So I'm sat there with this single bottle of a year's worth of work, um, waiting to see when he opens it, is it going to just be flat or am I going to get this kind of gushing fountain of beer coming at the top? But fortunately it opened, it hissed nicely, nothing came out. And then we were able to actually do it face to face, which was lovely. That's awesome. And, you know, in the world of COVID, we don't get to do anything face-to-face anymore. No. Specifically a beer tasting. These are tough to do. Indeed. Man, one day it's going to happen again. Yeah, I hope so. (laughs) I really hope so. (laughs) Me too. Trust me, nobody needs a day at the pub like me. (laughs) (laughs) So now you've gone on to this year where you're doing foraging, right? Mm -hmm. And, and, And why don't you explain to me what year two's project is or the second segment's project is yeah sure well year two as i said is that kind of throughout the whole of the first year i was kind of becoming increasingly aware that i'm i'm i'm, I'm relying on other people's expertise and equipment and knowledge yet what happens if we go right back we go back to those first brewers that made it to, to british shores at least i'm trying to keep some kind of uh kind of a uh, sort of regional aspect to it rather than just brewing across the whole world um and and looking at what they would have had, the ingredients they would have had, what process they may or may not have gone through, and what those those drinks would have looked like. So um, it, it's kind of not ignoring all of the skills and all the knowledge that we've got now, but it's just looking at what they had available to them then um, and bringing it right back. So uh, we know that sort of beer and brewing really started when, when grains arrived, certainly in the UK. That was the, the, the point. Um, but I was sort of wondering, well, you know what 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 was there around could i actually forage a beer as well can i find some wild growing grasses or grains and use those is it even possible rather than just depending on the on the commercial or domesticated barley that we have now which is which is really different if you look back at the the older grains from three four thousand years ago they're tiny they're much much smaller than than the modern barley is much less sugar in them much more work really to to get that that sugar out to make your beer and when you look at really old beer recipes, you notice that their ABVs are really low, right? Mm. It, a lot of it has to do with the amount of sugars that you could extract from the grain. And also, I would say that they didn't have the types of temperature controls that we had for mashing as well. And so you, you look at like, and there are books here in the States where you can see 
beer recipes like spruce beers made in the 1700s and when you look at them their average abv is probably two one and a half maybe at a high end three percent alcohol and you know the, the the grain just wasn't as fortified as it is today no and, and i think what's going to be interesting for me is finding out because what we don't know is that when you go sort of beyond written history, you've got no idea what kind of strengths they were brewing at that point. No it's idea. Just, it's, just, it's, it's guesswork, yeah. It's complete guesswork. So it's, it's um, you know, I'm sure that there are, and there were the skills involved that you could tell what temperature things are at by kind of the appearance of the water and the characteristics of the mash to an extent. So people were still skilled brewers um, and able to, to, to replicate their beer time after time, or the ale, as it would have been back then, um, pre-hops. Um, but yeah, certainly without those, um, without the modern measuring equipment and, and the tools that we've got now, so much would rely on just a person's intuition and, and their experience, really. So what you're now in the midst of that project, right? Mm. Yeah. And so where are you today? Like if you were, if you were going to say, Hey, this year, this is, this is what I'm going to brew a beer out of foraged ingredients. Where are you in that process? So uh, this year um, I have, uh, we've now grown the, the barley. So I've grown my, my, my crop again this year. I've also been out and I've, I've tried foraging for, for a wild variety of barley that I've found around where I live. Cause I, I live in a pretty rural part of the Southwest of the UK. So we've got lots of hedgerows, lots of countryside fields and the coastline around us. Um, but I've got a, a pitifully small amount of wild barley. That, that the difference between growing a modern crop and trying to find an equivalent, the amount of work for what you get is just huge, the comparison between the two. Um, you can completely see why we don't forage for our grains at the moment, but um, we've, we've got that. So we've also, um, I've, I say we, uh, I've got the uh, wild herbs, so the pre-hop equivalents. So things like meadow sweet, um, uh, ground ivy, yarrow, um, things that grow in abundance around around me here. And these would have been the herbs that were used for either bittering or flavor or a little bit of antibacterial and preservation uh, long, long before um, hops arrived sort of 900 years ago in the UK. So that's, that's kind of dried because we've reached the end of our summer now. We're in kind of late autumn. So if I haven't got it by now, I'm not going to get it effectively. Um, and then um, the current step is I'm, I'm also experimenting with, with honey as well. So those earliest of brewers, they would have had honey as a sugar source and either doing it separately for mead or blending it with their barley. So I'm, I'm, and this week is a week that I'm, I'm, I'm making up a very, very basic mead using local honey and water. And then next week and the week after that are going to be the ones that we look at the grain that I've got. I've got to build my own primitive mash tun, build the kiln for the malting before that stage as well. And it looks like, it only occurred to me the other day, of course, you didn't have fermentation vessels 4,000 years ago made of plastic, or, or, or you may have had like a, a primitive clay pot, um, uh, if, if you know, if you, if you were able to make those. So, or a wood um, cask, uh, or something yeah, like that. Yeah. I, it's likely, I think, that even when you go back, it, it possibly would have been like a clay from the local soil, and then use that, yep. and then fire it in your little... little so I've, I've got to now look at, at that, I've got my fermentation vessel to sort out. So I've suddenly gone from being this still fairly up-to-date growing of my ingredients and foraging and walking around and finding them, to going, crikey. I don't have all these tools in my kitchen right now. I've got to go back and make everything I need to make sure it's as authentic <laughs> as I can be. And it's kind of a dawning realization that I've got so much work in the next three weeks <laughs> to get you really, ready for my You point. really do. I mean, uh, and it's not even that. You're, you, you were just talking about the vessel that you're going to try to do your mashing and the boil in, right? Mm, and yeah. so, uh, for example, if you look at how they brewed beers in just, you know, a few hundred years ago when a a metal pot was not as easy to come by 
right? They they did have them, but they, you know, a kettle made out of metal was very, very expensive and hard for people yeah. to acquire. I mean, nails were a big deal back then, right? And yeah. so that's where like decoction mashing came from, right? Is you had one vessel to actually get things hot enough and you would just kind of pour it in with cold water to get the temperatures right so you, could, you knew it would mash. And it, it's kind of funny to think about those types of strategies came up before people had thermometers or any type of, of gadgets that we have today. It, yeah. It's kind of amazing to think that they ended up making not just beer, but good beer, right? Yeah, yeah, perfectly drinkable stuff. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm, it looks like I'm going to have to go back even sort of, I think, further than that. And, and if you look at the really early sites where there's evidence of brewing. Um, I, I think it was the third episode in this series, one that's coming up in a couple of weeks. That was with an archaeologist who specializes in early brewing. And they actually live on Orkney now, um, where they've got these old sites. And they said the evidence there is that people were heating up stones or rocks in a fire, and they were dropping them straight into the mash tun, probably the yep. wooden trough or whatever they were using, and using those stones in with the grain to bring it up to a mash temperature. Um, and because it's uh, these were raw ales as well, these are pre-hop, there's no need to boil it. You just want to get it up yep. to temperature to get the sugars out. That was it. You just poured it off, let it cool, and then you put it in your pot, cover it, and, and whatever your yeast strain that you've got working then, fingers crossed, does a job for you and you make it drinkable. But it's like a, it's much <laughs> – it wasn't a quick process then, but by our standards, it's certainly a much shorter number of steps and uh, a much quicker drunk product as well, I think. Yeah. And, and so is that your process you're going to attempt to do is possibly heating up the stones or is, mm -hmm. or are you still trying to figure out how you're going to do it? Yeah, it's probably going to be the stones, I think. So um, I've got a little pile of stones outside the front of my house ready to go. Unfortunately, um, because I've grown such little barley and I've got such little forage barley, it's still a small batch again. So it's, it's hopefully it's quite manageable. But I've spent the last <laughs> few days trying to um, basically carve out uh, a tree stump or like a, a broad log that I've got. So I've got my kind of curved... Um, based on the Scandinavian sort of farmhouse style, uh, Kerner. So um, a lot of what um, you know is coming out sort of in the last few years about you know farmhouse brewing in Scandinavia that's still there, it's still being used. That tradition hasn't gone away at all. They've still got the farmhouse yeast, the kvike. All right. of those absolutely make sense with what would have been happening in the UK to me at least thousands of years ago. You know, a, a fast fermenting, hot fermenting beer that you could put by the fireplace and it's done its job in two days and then you drink it. That, why wouldn't you do that? <laughs> yeah. Well, I ask myself that now because that's what yeah. how I'm brewing beer these days is I'm using yeah. Kvike. Uh, if you go look right now at my taps, I have, I still have some meat from the summer on, but I have two mm -hmm. beers on tap and both of them are Kvike beers right now. And yeah, yeah. they are clean. They're good. And I fermented them in the eighties. It's insane to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it, it does. It's just kind of like a, you know, for me, stumbling upon raw ales and, and that Scandinavian way at the same time as I was doing this this project it just all fits in really nicely that you would have had a, 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 that kind of yeast that you could dry that you could store from batch to batch easily that you could you know use time and time again that you could do it hot you could do it quickly it's just yeah it makes sense seems to to me at least anyway exactly so if I were to want to let's say I'm a home brewer and I'm fascinated by your project and want to dive into your podcast, but even your project that you did last year where you grew all of all of your materials. Where, where would I find that? Uh, if you have a look on either kind of the Apple podcasts or Spotify, um, look for Growing Beer. That, that, that will come up with a podcast. Um, or you can listen on my site. It's beerwithben.co.uk. 
um, and that's got the episodes on there as well. So any one of those should help you find the previous series and the stuff that's coming out between now and, and this December. And if I were trying to do a very similar project myself and wanted to reach out to you, could I go to your website and find your contact mm. information to ask yeah, questions? Yeah, of course you can. Yeah, definitely. There's a, there's a contact form there. People are very welcome to say hi. Um, or if they have a look on, on various different social media, so on Insta, Facebook, Twitter, there's Growing Beer in there as well. So yeah, people are very welcome to come out and say hi and, and, and let me know if they've done anything quite as silly or they <laughs> just want to find out more. Hey, you think it's silly, but I, I get... Being in the homebrew media section, I, I definitely talk to a lot of brewers that are doing similar projects, and yeah. it's something where, I don't know, it's just kind of, to me, even in my brewing history, there's been aspects of where I've tried to you know create my, get my own yeast from my backyard, and, and there's just something about using those local ingredients that's really intriguing to me, and I think that you have a unique flavor of your own beer at your house. That's that's cool. Oh, yeah. No, it, it, it's awesome to be able to have made a beer, which is entirely your work, I think. The reason why I say, um, you know, it's a slightly questionable decision to make to spend that much time and effort on it. Is at the end of the first year, I worked out some of the numbers on it. And it turns out that I had, I think off the top of my head, it was 700 hours in total spent on, on the project over the one year for what worked out to be about 40, 45 bottles of beer. And we're talking 330s, not, not big ones. Um, <laughs> of which, because I had so many people that I interviewed over the 12, 11, sorry, episodes, I said, oh, there's always there's a beer in it for everyone else. And I had a tasting party at the end. And the whole year built up to, will I have a beer to drink on Christmas Day or not? And I had three bottles left. So um, that worked out as less. I think it was uh, slightly more than a millimeter per hour, a milliliter per hour of work. Um, I was putting into for that beer and then when I factored in that if I was trying to sell this just to break even if I've paid myself minimum wage and that's not including all of the experts and kind people who have massively helped me out throughout the year I think I have the uh, I may be wrong on this but I think I created the least economically viable beer ever Um, (laughs) it it worked out at about £1,025 a pint um, if I was going to try and break even on my time, which is, you know, it's just a, just a little subtle warning for those that think this sounds like a good idea. It's, it is a good, it's great fun, but it takes a while. <laughs> yeah. And you also have to look at it is that the, the reason beer is so cheap is really the scale and, and the fact that it yeah, is economical, massively. right? We look at, yeah. and, and to be honest, if you look at the British styles in the history of beer, Great Britain was pretty much who in, truly invented industrial sized beer and brewing specifically with porters. And it's, it's kind of something where that's a tradition that's now spread all over the world. And that's why you have, you know, gigantic companies that are making gigantic vats of beer on an industrial scale and, and hours and hours of farming and thousands and thousands of man hours of farming going into making that grain and the hops production. It's it, when you think about how many jobs are actually built into the scale that goes into making a pint of beer, it's kind of mind boggling when you look at the entire process to actually get a pint from like a large scale brewery. It, yeah. You don't yeah. really think about that much work. And when you try to do it at your at home on your own level, it really comes into focus. Oh, hugely. I think over that year, um, there's 11 episodes of the podcast, and each of those covers a slightly different topic with a different expert. So that, including me, that's an absolute minimum of 12 people's expertise and time going into a box of beer. You know, and, and that, it's crazy. 
it really is crazy. Well, I, well, Ben, thank you so much for coming on Homebrewing DIY. I will, you know, if as you get finished with the second project, love to hear more of how that one is turning out. And sure. and obviously, I'll I'll follow on your podcast and follow on your website because when I found it, I've I've been intrigued, and so my my I can't wait to see how this entire second year project turns out. It, it's going to be pretty exciting to see when you pop the beer. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It, it's, I think it's a blend of exciting and terrifying, but yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I've got a, a little bit of work left to go, but I'll let you know how it, how it, how it pans out. Definitely. Awesome. So if you're listening to this podcast right now and you want to find out more about the beers that Ben here is making, please look in the show notes. I'll have links to all of that. Also follow me on, my social media and we'll we'll share that as well well ben thank you so much for coming on the show and we'll definitely have you back some other time you're welcome thanks very much all right so now we're going to jump into some feedback and specifically i got a few pieces of feedback from last week's episode when we talked about one gallon batches the first email that i received was from james and he sent me an email, and it was called One Gallon Batch Reasons. And I'm going to read it to you now. Hey, Coulter. I enjoyed the episode on reasons for one-gallon batches. I thought you gave a lot of great reasons. I'm very new to brewing, and I've done it with friends for the most part. I have, a minimal, I have minimal equipment, and I'm hoping to get more gifts when my B-Day and the holidays roll around. That being said, I just brewed a one-gallon batch, and we'll be ready to bottle on Sunday. And I did it because my group had postponed our next big brew session and I didn't want to lose my momentum. So since I'm starting a new hobby, I wanted to keep it rolling. Also, it was really quick. And when using an extract kit, brewed it in about three hours and mainly because of the heating up and cooling down time. One gallon is a lot faster than when doing a larger volume. Bonus benefits, my wife joined me and is now very interested in going to, in doing more brews. And she liked being able to stay inside the cool, rainy fall Sunday instead of sitting in the chilly garage uh, to brew a batch on a burner. Also, keep an eye on your six-year-old twins without, brew, without be, being too far away and being near the kettle, which in the way has helped save my boil over from most of my boil overs from happening. So love the show, and I really helped me shorten my learning curve on being a new brewer. Cheers, James. And thank you, James, so much for the feedback. And I can't agree with you enough. And and I responded saying how lucky he is that his wife actually brews with him. I kind of in the situation where my wife doesn't really drink beer, and so therefore, I am one day going to make a beverage she likes. I am just yet to get there, and I've been brewing for almost decade hard, and so we'll. We'll figure it out one day. All right, let's jump into the next piece of feedback. This one is from T-Other1, and this is off of Reddit. And he said, decent breakdown. I apologize in advance for the wall of text, but you asked for it literally at the end of the show. Uh, And T-Other1, I'm actually glad you listened to the entire podcast. That makes me really happy. I brewed nothing but one gallon batches. I'm nearing 100 batches, and I don't foresee scaling up anytime soon unless it's an occasional two-gallon batch and for tried-and-true recipes. Uh, 
The amount of experience that you can gain quickly accumulating through the practice and the minimal amount of space that it takes up, especially if you live in an apartment, makes it an awesome option for a lot of people. Unfortunately, people looking down their noses that it doesn't help when you're trying to feel like it's it, when you're trying to feel like it's becoming less common, but I agree and I'm going to interject here. I agree. I don't like it when people look down their noses about any way that people brew. And I think that whether you brew a one gallon batch or you brew a hundred gallon batch, it doesn't matter. It's still brewing beer. So get back into this. I imagine that I'm in the minority since most every discussion that is about it is a fun alternative to brewing a real size of beer. But anyway, I think tiny batches are the single best way to learn and are a very viable way to brew in general, provided that you aren't sharing your beer a ton and that you enjoy the process of brewing. So for learning especially, you can't beat it in my opinion. It's easy and cheap to start, and most people already have the usable stock pot, like you said, but the biggest things for me is that you have way fewer consequences if your brew day goes bad. I can't imagine having to dump 40 plus bottles of beer, but then again, I can't imagine having to drink my way through 40 plus bottles of beer of the same exact beer, especially starting out, but each their own. I don't know how many people do it and feel like if more people started out on small batches, more people would stick with brewing all grain. Secondly, it forces you to brew and therefore the the necessarily forces you to become better brewer quicker. If you want to get the swing of it, you have to really get the respectable, the variety of the styles and have the same footprint as a single batch on a normal system. Further, and this is kind of secondary, it gives you the real world brewery practice in a different way bottling and etc. more carefully than for five gallons. You don't want to spill it. In a tiny bit more work, but for the fact that you can get multiple brews out in a single ounce of hops and for a pack of yeast, it really stretches your money. And for once, you can get into it and have a brew pub size selection on a single shelf in your fridge. Yes, normal batches are still cheaper by the bottle, but I personally don't care too much about that. I'm still saving money hand over fist than on commercial beer, and I don't feel that any pressure to not buy commercial beer. So it's just the best of both worlds. Also, frankly, I just don't, can't wait to drink that much. Anyway, that's my rant, and there are a couple overlooked things that I'd like to add just in case you heard on the show and, 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 and somebody heard on the show and wants to start out. Some of you, you, some of you, some you did touch on, but they're still important to others, and they're things that I mention a lot that are overlooked or untrue. So these are the bullet points. It's absolutely not the same amount of work for less beer. Everything goes quicker, and regardless of its home brewing or not home drinking, it doesn't. If you don't like the process, just visit a brewery and buy their beer. No one, there's no need for a war chiller. You can cool it pretty quickly in a nice bath in your sink. Equipment, bottles, fermentation area takes up way less room. If you're in an apartment, everything's cleanable in your sink. You don't need to have hoses and whatnot. With your careful planning, you can really maximize the use of your ingredients. 
You can also bottle use a bottling bucket if you want, and a skinny plastic fridge water dispenser works great, and they don't take up much room. Practically, no need for starters for every little worry for underpitching yeast, because obviously you can get multiple batches out of a single pack of yeast. And most importantly, you can get the level of control over your fermentation champ, champ your fermentation fermentation temperatures with a low tech setup that you could never get with a normal batch size. Since there's less thermal mass, it's easier to keep temps down. And I did a lot of measuring when I first started. A gallon stays about 1.5 or so degrees above the temp outside during the peak of fermentation. With a cooler full water, like with a full water in my closet, I can basically control my temp throughout. Yes, it requires a little more work than with a fridge, but the space constraints, money, etc., I don't see any reason to upgrade at the moment and without going without going to a bigger bigger batch size. Although the ability to cold crash, which you did mention, and logger in your fridge without having to buy without having to move around much food, it means that you get the cold side pretty well taken care of with little effort and investment on your part. Lastly, anybody wanting to dive in more should get onto a couple of specialized pieces of equipment. You already mentioned the mini racking cane, but a refractometer is a and a jewelry scale so that it can get to a hundredth of the gram is really helpful for hops and water additions. Anyway, sorry about the novel and keep up the good work. Cheers. Yes, that was a really long post, but it did have some really, really great pieces of information on why you should brew one gallon batches. All right. Well, that's it for feedback. And I want to thank everyone who did give us feedback this week on the one gallon batches and let's uh, wrap up the show. I'd like to thank Ben for taking the time to come on this week's show. I think that we had a really great conversation talking about the really unique project that he's got going on with foraging and growing his own beer. It's it's a pretty amazing feat that he has there for not a lot of beer, but still very, very cool. The other thing is, is you can always leave us feedback. I'd love to hear maybe some of the extremes that you've gone to when it comes to getting your brew day done that that would be kind of a, a cool some cool feedback so send that feedback to podcast at homebrewingdiy.beer or head to homebrewingdiy.beer and hit the contact form on our website and that will shoot me an email as well lastly we are getting towards the end of the year and for our end of the year show we always do our homebrew hack show so start sending those in just uh put into the put into the into the subject line of your email homebrew hack so that I can put that away for that show and love to hear any kind of cool tip or trick that you have when it comes to homebrewing. Well, that's it for this week and we'll talk to you next week on homebrewing DIY. Homebrewing DIY.